You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. your host bringing you, I hope, the very best in scholarly information and apologetics. And today, we're going to be talking about events going on in the United States and how Christians are being seen and treated by the culture at large. And my guest is the co-author of a book called So Many Christians, So Few Lions. And he is Dr. George Yancey. According to his biography, he's a professor of sociology at the University of North Texas. He's published several research articles on topics of institutional racial diversity, racial identity, academic bias, and anti-Christian hostility. His books include Compromising Scholarship, which explores religious and political biases in academia, There Is No God, which investigates atheism in the United States, and one we're talking about today, So Many Christians, So Few Lines, that assesses Christianophobia in the United States. He currently is working to create the first Christian Studies Center on a secular campus. So, um, Dr. Yancey, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thanks for having me, Nick. It's good to have you here. Oh, and call me George. Okay, George, that's fine. Now, if uh, people might not have heard of you, tell us a little bit about who you are, you know, how you got to be doing what you're doing, things of that sort. Well, uh, the first part of my career... I really concentrated on issues of race and ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what people can't tell from the podcast is I am an African-American. Uh-huh. And as an African-American, I experienced you know, what, what it's like to be an African-American in the United States. <clears throat> and being a Christian and African-American, my concerns was how has the church dealt with racial issues? Mm-hmm. Uh, this led to other things, of course, but that was a main concern of mine. I did a lot of work on interracial uh, relationships, uh, multiracial churches, so forth and so on. Mm-hmm. About five or six years ago, I remember attending a academic session where a professor presented a paper uh, where he basically argued that there was not a bias against conservatives, religious or religious. I'm sorry, political conservatives or Christians in either academia or in journalism. And the design was all wrong. Uh, as a social scientist, I could tell he was making assumptions that he could not make based on data that could not tell him what he said it was telling him. And in my mind at that time, I developed a, uh, I developed a research methodology that if I was to tackle this question, this is how I would do it. Well, I was still doing work on multiracial churches and, and race, but I felt God calling me away from that and towards looking at uh, issues of uh, anti-Christian bias. Uh-huh. This led to my first book, which you mentioned, Compromising Scholarship, where I talked about uh, bias in academia. Uh-huh. I actually did that book thinking I would find more political bias than religious bias. It was the opposite way. It was opposite. Uh-huh. There was more negative bias against Christians than against uh, Republicans, even though there was some against Republicans. Yeah. Uh, it was stronger against 
evangelicals and fundamentalist Christians. Right. This sort of set the stage for me to, to think deeper about it and to think about a more society-wide anti-Christian bias. And this led to the research that generated so many Christians, so few lions. Uh, we call it Christianophobia, and some people struggle with that. I struggle with calling it Christianophobia. Right. It's not a perfect, it's not a perfect uh, term, but it's the best one we can come up with. Uh, but there's def it, it definitely captures something in our society. This sort of hostility towards Christians uh, is it's not it's not a fake. It's not uh, something that Christians are just whining about. It is real. You know, if you wanted to consider a term, I think I wrote a post on this a year or two ago, and I actually called it a Jesus allergy that people <laughs> seem to have. Yeah. yeah. Well, that that is a possibility. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I think when the things of Christianophobia, and we do have a minute, it's not the best term, it, is, it reminds us too much of terms like homophobia and things of that sort. True, and, you know, and I know the critique of homophobia, which I think is an accurate one, is it, it implies fear of homosexuals, when really it means a lot of other things. And, yeah. and probably in part of why we use Christianophobia is, yes, and you can look at Islamophobia the same way, those terms are already out there, right? and if you invent a totally new term, now you have to educate people on what this term means. Whereas, right. kind of, and the way I would look at homophobia and Islamophobia is you're really not talking about fear. Uh, that's part of it. You're also talking about anger and bigotry and things of this nature. And people will understand that. So, Christianophobia, and once again, you know, I, I'm open to the critique that it's not perfect. I, I acknowledge that. Right. Christianophobia allows us to say the same things without having to re-educate everyone on a new term. Right. So now. We're in a, a state in our country where there is this Christianophobia going on. And it wasn't always like that. I mean, there was a time when the Bible was respected and things of that sort. So, uh, in, kind of like in a brief history, how did we get to where we are today? How did you get to a nation that really respects the Bible to a nation where Christians have hostility towards them? You know, I think there are several different factors that probably play into that. Mm -hmm. uh, social scientists generally argue that as nations modernize, they tend to move away from traditional religions for a variety of different reasons. Uh, you begin, you can come in contact with other people, different beliefs, uh, things of this nature. So that's probably part of it. I also think that part of it is that, you know, and we could, we could also blame Christians to, for, to some extent because when Christians had dominant power, uh, they sometimes misuse that dominant power. You know, having studied race ethnicity, I know that there are Christians who justified slavery and justified wiping out the Native Americans, mm -hmm. while there are Christians that also were, you know, uh, fought against slavery and such and such. Right. Uh, I, it seemed that once the tide turned enough to where being a Christian was not, ex was not seen as what you should do, what is the acceptable thing to do, I think a lot of people who are on the fence who are kind of, uh, I don't know what the term for it is, you might say nominal Christian or cultural Christian, they could more easily choose not to be a Christian uh -huh. or to be a Christian in a way that was even hostile towards Christians. In fact, and I'm going to do a blog on this pretty soon, I've just looked at some data that shows that progressive Christians actually, whether it's Christianophobia or not, actually have as much uh, disaffinity towards conservative Christians as almost anyone else. Uh -huh. So, uh, so I think that there's been sort of a, this shift. Uh, once it was no longer 
seen as, well, you kind of should be a Christian in our society. It's okay if you're not, but you kind of should be, to where, hey, we have all these different religions, and, and any of them are okay. Just pick, your, pick whatever one you want, that sort of attitude. Uh, that seems to have shifted the tide to where uh, people felt it was okay to be more outspoken with their hostility towards Christians. I think the hostility was always there in, in, in lower numbers. Yeah. But they feel okay about expressing it until recently, and now they feel more and more okay about expressing it. Yeah. Now, when we're talking about this hostility, I think we should be clear what we're talking about. We, we're not at this point talking about honest persecution yet, right? Not in the United States. I, right. You know, my argument is that United States Christians are not being persecuted. Right. And in fact, I, I would argue that that when Christians in the United States talk about Christians, you know, talk about Christians in the United States as being persecuted, they make a mistake. And in fact, I think we lower the sacrifices of Christians who really are being persecuted yes, all over the world. I, I totally agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Now, well, this title also that you get from the book, it comes because you actually sent out some questionnaires, and there were seven respondents who made remarks about lions. Yeah, that, that and uh, and you know and. Of course, seven's not that many out of the uh, few thousand that we got back, but still, when you, it's enough that catches your attention. Mm-hmm. And that kind of got me thinking, you know, why are people talking about lions? And I did an internet search, and you can actually buy a bumper sticker that says, so many Christians, so few lions, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, which floors me. You can buy T-shirts that say, so many Christians, so few lions. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just don't know groups that we, we just, you can buy a T-shirt talking about how fun it is to torture someone. Uh, you know, so many Jews, so few ovens, things of that nature. You just, you just could not buy a t-shirt like that in the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can. And, and if anyone doubts me, just go ahead and go online and do a Google search and do shopping, and you'll find it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, in fact, I just uh, was doing a search on Amazon. I found a uh, magnet you could put on your refrigerator or something that says the exact same thing. Yeah. Now, let's talk about this uh, survey here. You, you said you got back seven responses. Some people could be wondering, what is this survey? Tell us how you did it, and, you know, just especially for those of us who don't understand how these kinds of things work. Sure. Uh, the, the survey is part of what we call a, our qualitative portion of our, of our sampling. Mm-hmm. What we did was, and we're actually studying something else. We're studying cultural progressive activists, and the responses then made me think more about Christianophobia. So we contacted several organizations that, as part of their mission, uh, was to oppose the religious right. And we asked them uh, if they would send the survey out to their members, and, and some of them agreed. And in the survey, uh, we had open-ended questions. Uh, open-ended questions such as, you know, what do you, uh, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but I believe, uh, what do you like about the Christian right? What do you not like? How do you define the Christian right? Uh, and in those answers, of course, some of the respondents talk about Christianity and Christians and, and things of this nature. And so from those open-ended questions, you get all this data that you go through and we coded the data and uh, we, you know, we, we did interior reliability checks uh, so we could run some analysis of the data. And that's where we found the themes that made up uh, for this book as far as our qualitative portion. Uh, and so, so when, you talk, when I talk about the survey, when I talk about the qualitative portion, it's, that's what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, for some who are wondering that, now this was our peer-reviewed, awesome, I'm guessing, right? This is an academic book. Yeah, it went through peer review. Mm-hmm. 
and you you send out to all these atheistic organizations, and people could respond as they saw fit. And uh, how, how many how many responses did you get? Well, first off, let me just correct. They weren't all atheist organizations. Okay. Uh, some of them, in fact, we had, we actually had a very small percentage of our sample that were Christians. Uh-huh. So, 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 yeah. Uh, as far as the uh, open-ended questions, we got close to 4,000. I, uh-huh. I can look up the exact number if that's important, but we got close to 4,000 yeah. respondents. Yeah. When you talked about the Christian right, I mean, what, was this just something seen as synonymous with Christians, or was the Christian right a subsection of a survey? Well, the, the survey actually was about the Christian right. So, right. Uh, and that's how we got, you know, the book on Christian progressive activists. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm sorry, cultural progressive activists. Mm-hmm. But when people, well, first off, one interesting finding is that a lot of our respondents, uh, when they th- think Christian, they automatically think Republican. Right. Uh, you know, and so they, they conflate the Christian right with Christians. Mm-hmm. Uh, others did talk about Christian, I mean, Christianity. I mean, they were very explicit. They weren't talking about the Christian right. They're talking about Christians do this and Christians do that. Uh-huh. Uh, and so part of it was, you know, as we went through it, uh, it was clear they were talking about Republicans and they were really getting into Christians or anything of that nature. Then that wasn't a comment that we were really interested in. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of comments were either about the Christian right among people who kind of conflate them with Christians or about Christians in general. Mm-hmm. Now, when you uh, did this survey also... And that's very interesting to look at is you talk in when you show respondents I mean you don't have names or anything like that, but you have their age range that they're in, what yes. sex they are, and how much education they have. Why does this matter so much? Well, when you present this sort of data, you you like to give a little bit of context. Uh-huh. You know, so that the reader can know, hey, is this person a male, female, or are they highly educated, not highly educated? We did have a, a table that showed the demographics of our entire sample, but when I'm giving a quote, I'd like to give that for a little bit of context. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> when you talk about the people who did respond, and seven of them, like I said, responded with something about lions, I mean, it, it's seriously doubtful that if these people were walking through, say, a zoo with Christians, they, they would just really love to throw them into a lion's cage <laughs> when they walk past. Right. But, yeah. I mean, the, the statement being there is troubling enough, still. And you make the comparison. Imagine if we said something like, "So many Jews, so few ovens." Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, it is an interesting question, and one of the viewers I think did bring this up. Uh, you know, people are speaking in hyperbole. Obviously, uh, I'm pretty confident none of those people would feed me to a lion. Uh, but. You got to think about it in society, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. Uh, when people answer questions and they, they it's anonymous and they know that uh, the person doesn't know who they are, are they more honest or less honest? Mm-hmm. I tend to think, even though they're not going to actually throw people to the lions, this shows a level of vitriol that some of these individuals have. And uh, of course, there are other comments that were just as hostile, maybe even more so. Uh, so I bring that out not to say that okay Christians are about to be fed to lions. Uh, that, that's not our argument whatsoever. But our argument is that this is this that this hatred is a real hatred. It's not a well I disagree with them. You know they irritate me. Uh, to 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 use that sort of terminology for on a group 
shows a real level of hatred that is, uh, you know, from the gut almost. Uh, and so that's why we uh, included that and some of the other statements uh, that were quite hateful. Do you think it's possible that the Internet could be contributing to this? Because on the Internet, you can be totally anonymous, and you can always find someone who agrees with you. So these people who have these kinds of hostilities towards Christians, they can all gather together very easily and say whatever they want. And we, we all know we've all seen nasty things on the Internet. Well, yeah, I think the Internet contributes. I think I think this will develop even without the Internet. I think the Internet, just in general, when we talk, talk about deviant groups, uh, has been a boon for them because they can organize and get together. And I'll give you a really good example that's off this topic. Uh, polygamists can organize in ways now that they couldn't before because of the Internet, because if you're, if you actually were engaging in polygamy, uh, that's against the law, and, and, and you don't go around telling people, but now you can find people who agree with you on the Internet. And so mm -hmm. I do think it intensifies it, but I don't think that this is uh, what creates it. I think that this sentiment has been there, right. uh, and people and these people can find a way to get together. Mm. Yeah. Now, you go through and you talk about these people who have this anti-Christian animosity. It's very... Any common trend or any set of common trends you've noticed about these people? Well, and this gets into our quantitative sample uh, to really make to really argue about that because obviously this qualitative sample you can't uh, generalize that out to the to the rest of the population. So what we did was we used a a well known uh, national uh, sample, uh, and they asked a series of questions on how warm or cold you feel towards different groups. Uh, and it's called thermometer questions because the range is from zero to 100. And there are the, uh, a wide variety of groups. Well, we took all the religious groups and the racial groups because oftentimes when people talk about animosity, they're talking about racial animosity. And what we did for each individual is that we uh, averaged their ratings together from the about five or six, uh, I think five religious groups and four racial groups. Uh, I mean, maybe six. Uh, we average it all together, and then we want to see whether or not one of the groups they're, they're ranking was fundamentalist Christians. And so we were interested, did they rank a fundamentalist Christians a standard deviation below that average? And if they did, then we would say, okay, this, per this person has relative hostility towards conservative Christians. Now, I, I go on to this just to say that once we have this measure, we now can look at the demographics of who tends to have this sort of hostility. And based on our analysis, the people who tend to have this sort of hostility, they, they, they're more likely to be white than non-white. They're more likely to be male than female. They're more likely to be wealthy than poor. They're more likely to be educated than uneducated. Social scientists use characteristics like this to denote certain groups as majority group and minority group majority group have disproportionate power in society. And you'll notice that people with Christianophobia, or at least at this point have this animosity, tend to be in positions of power, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. White, male, wealthy, uh, educated. So now, obviously, there's people with it that don't fit in these categories. These are tendencies. We all, we all recognize this. But the tendency does seem to be that people who have animosity towards Christians have more social power 
and other individuals. Now, I compare this, I think in the book we compare this to people who have, anim have animosity towards atheists. Uh -huh. And to be fair, there are more people with animosity towards atheists than towards Christians, concerned Christians in the United States. Mm -hmm. However, the people who have animosity towards atheists don't tend uh, to be white, uh, if I remember correctly. They're, they're, they're uneducated. They're not wealthy. Uh, so you have more people who have animosity towards atheists, but they don't have as much per capita power as those who have animosity towards Christians. Yeah. Uh, now, okay, go, go ahead. Well, one thing I was wondering in all this is you use the terms fundamentalist Christians and conservative Christians, and I'm wondering if those are meaning the same thing or what exactly you mean by them. Right, and, and that's one of the difficulties of using, using it. I, as a social scientist, have a definition of what a conservative Christian is, a conservative Protestant. Mm -hmm. uh, most, if I, but if I put that on a survey, or uh, a lot of people don't know what that means. So what I used was, and by the way, I didn't design this, this other survey anyways, I use the term fundamentalist Christians because, in my mind, most people, and there's some, uh, there's some data that backs this up, mm -hmm. but most people think of fundamentalist Christians, they think of a conservative Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, I recently have did some research on academics, and the way academics define fundamentalist Christians tend to be people who see the Bible as the, uh, as the in inherent word of God. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're not thinking of they're not thinking of the Westboro Baptist people. They're not thinking of people who are you know running around with snakes and things of this nature. They're thinking of you know pre-conservative Christians. Mm -hmm. And so I think that when people are looking at fundamentalist Christians, they are thinking about conservative Christians. Although not every single person probably does. Now, when you were talking about hostility towards Christians and hostility towards atheists, I mean, the, the point that you're making is that yes, there are a lot more people with hostility towards atheists. But the thing is, the people who have hostility towards Christians are ones of power, and they can actually do something of their hostility. Right, they can do different things. You know, uh, I'm not going to downplay the fact that hostility towards atheists doesn't cost atheists something. Right. But, uh, you know, people with power, and while it's less than atheists, it's not insignificant. I think about 32% of our sample had hostility towards conservative Christians, compared to about 46% of our sample towards atheists. Uh, mm -hmm. So, so it's not it's not insignificant the numbers, and they're very powerful. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, when it comes to say court rulings or laws or things of this nature, yeah. chances are that the person who's who's made that decision, there's a better chance that they have hostility towards Christians than towards atheists. Mm -hmm. Now, I have to ask when you're sending out all this material and going through and such, what steps are taken to avoid bias? Well, I try to design my research to where uh, to where the null hypothesis can be true uh, more easily. Badly designed research that I've seen uh, is designed in such a way to where you're going to find what the person is, wants. For example, some ethnographies I, I have real problems with because basically they go in, they expect to find, say, uh, racial prejudice or sexuality prejudice or gender mm -hmm. bias. And, of course, yeah. if you look for that, that's what you're going to do. Uh -huh. So think about the, my uh, quantitative uh, research. It is very possible that I analyze the data and I find that there's hardly any uh, bias against uh, fundamentalist Christians because very many people don't rank them below uh, the, their average. Right. Uh, so my null hypothesis could, could definitely be true. As no, should I use null hypothesis? Should I explain what that is? Yeah, that'd be good. 
Yeah. A null hypothesis is the chances that what you find is untrue. So if I'm predicting that there's going to be a, a significant percentage of people that have hostility towards Christians, the null hypothesis is that there's not a lot of people with hostility towards Christians. Uh, and, there, and there were groups that we measured. Here, here's a classical example. We measured, you know, we had racial groups in there as well. And you, and you can measure to see, I don't think I report this in the book, but you can measure to see whether there's a lot of people that had anti-black uh, hostility to these. And I believe the number of that was like 4 to 5%, maybe 6%. Mm-hmm. So if that was the case for Christian fundamentalists, if only four to five to six percent of my of my of the sample had anti-Christian hostilities, then one can reasonably argue that that the null hypothesis is true that there's really not a lot of hostility towards Christians in the United States. Uh, I'm not arguing that for African Americans. I think it, you know I think there's reasons why it was so low. But I'm just showing you how I design research in a way to where the null hypothesis can possibly be true. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, but there's another chapter coming up after asked about who these people are with anti-Christian animosity in Saska. How is that a shaping the perceptions of Christians? And we, we can see this a lot better. For instance, in many television shows and movies, Christians aren't always treated in the highest esteem. There are some rare exceptions on some shows and movies, but for the most part, Christians are perceived as ignorant, uh, people of faith and, and such in a very negative sense. I'm remembering, this is at our church, unfortunately I wasn't there when it happened, but there was an atheist group that came by and they left this letter thing that said, with faith you can believe anything. And you think, oh, if only I had got to meet these people. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, it, is this the kind of thing you're, you're talking about? I mean, is this t- about how we're seen in the culture? Yeah, the the image that people with Christian phobia have of Christians, I mean, there's a definitely a, a distinctive image. Uh, first, either the Christians are followers who are very stupid, who are very naive, they were indoctrinated when they were a kid and they don't know any better, or the, they're leaders who are manipulative, who are cunning, who who uh, who are greedy, who are hypocrites. Uh, they they argue that Christians. Uh, are trying to take us are trying to set up a theocracy. Oh yes. Uh, that they're trying to take us back to the dark ages. Uh, mm-hmm. That they're intolerant, racist, sexist, homophobic. Uh, that they uh, want to shove the Bible down everyone's throat. Uh, rude. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's hard to think of a negative adjective that mm-hmm. I did not come across uh, when 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 I was reading the, the the answers of of my respondents, but some more than others. The hypocrite. The uh, the intolerant, the bigoted, uh, that came across quite, quite often. The American Taliban, uh, I know some of my respondents uh, use that, so that Christianity is the United States, what, you know, what the, uh, what ISIS is to uh, the Middle East, things of this nature. They, they didn't say ISIS because they weren't big at the time, but, uh, but you get that sense that, that that's the way that they perceive, perceive Christians. Uh, and I think that, I think that's how they honestly perceive Christians. To be honest, I don't think they're just exaggerating. Right. Uh, I think that this is this is their image they have. Yeah, yeah. I, I I've seen this going on. I mean, when you read the new atheist literature, for instance, it's seen as Christians are people who believe anything without evidence. 
And that's what faith supposedly is. And yes, I've been accused of wanting to be someone who wants to start a theocracy in America. And I consider it going on usually a form of what I call atheistic presuppositionalism. Mm-hmm. Where a lot of atheists just seem to have this attitude. I'm a ra- I'm an atheist. I know there is no God. I know th- that science is the correct way to know things. And you know this is just ipso facto basic knowledge. So if you disagree, you must be a person who's opposed to reason whatsoever. And so I mean, if you're just disagreeing with me, that shows you're just not a rational thinker. Yeah, in my research on atheists, I came across that, and, and we talked about a quality known as particularism, uh-huh. which means that you think that your way is the only way. Mm-hmm. And atheists, uh, and I know a lot of them would, would disagree with this, but they are very particularistic. They think if you yeah. disagree with them, you're not rational. Right. Their, their way, atheism, is the only way. Not all atheists, obviously, right. but a, a high percentage of them do. In fact, I'm actually reading a book right now called An Atheist Defends Religion, and the author pretty much takes the kind of stance you were just, where he argues against that stance, I should say, saying that, yeah, we we need religion and we need to stop having these kinds of attitudes because we're actually making situations far worse for everyone involved. Now, you're talking about how so many atheists are particularists, and one other group that can go along with this are the people who I prefer to call as the tolerance crowd. Mm-hmm. Because I usually like to talk about them and say, you know, you'd think if this gospel of tolerance was so good, they'd actually be practicing it. Because the people I know who are the most intolerant, and I mean in a classical sense, are the ones that are proclaiming tolerance the loudest. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this has nothing to do with my research, but my personal life, Whenever one, when anyone ever says that they, they really hate intolerance, my experience is usually that person winds up being very intolerant themselves. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just been my personal experience. I, I would love to research that out one of these days to see if people who highly value tolerance actually are quite intolerant with, when, when, you, uh, when you give them the right groups to be intolerant towards. Uh, in fact, I've done a little bit of research on uh, that, de- that, that debunks right-wing authoritarianism by showing that since the qualities of authoritarianism can be found in progressives mm-hmm. uh, by switching out the groups, uh, but I've not really chased down that rabbit hole completely. It's kind of ironic that these groups that decry the fundamentalism that they see in Christians, which they see as a my way or a highway, not going to bend, not going to change my mind, can't be persuaded by contrary evidence and things of that sort. Many of these groups that condemn that often have the exact same attitude themselves on their own belief systems. Yeah, I, I you know, I know that you run into and debate with atheists all the time and, yep. and I don't do as I don't do as much because it's not my it's not my thing, although, you know, I'm very careful with my apologetical knowledge, and every now and then I do. And, and one, one thing I've learned is to ask the question, what would it take you to convince you that there is a God? And then when, when I get fanciful answers, I know that they're not serious. And right. usually I don't want to go on after that because if they're not open to discussion, why should I waste my time? I mean, I don't know if that's the most Christian attitude, but it's the one I've developed over time. Yeah, it, it's the one I've got as well, and I'm thinking about someone like Peter Bogosian who says that, what would it take to convince him? He says, well, I'll borrow from Lawrence Krauss here and say, 
If I walked out at night and saw all the stars in the sky aligned to say, I am Yahweh, believe in me, and everyone else on the planet saw this in their own language, it might be suggestive. We could all be having a delusion, but it might be suggestive. And as soon as I see that, I think, okay, so what you're telling me is I could give you any sort of number of arguments for God's existence, and you've already decided they're not going to work until you have an experience. Yeah, yeah. I, I had a similar experience to someone else yeah. recently who suggested if God came down and explained to him exactly, you know, why he's not revealed to him before and all the things that's happened, then he'll believe. And, of course, I, I realized at that time that even if that happened, yeah. he, he would wake up the next morning and say, oh, that must have been a dream. So yeah. what, was, what was the purpose of having a discussion from that point on? Yeah. One question I usually ask them is... Uh, when was the last time you read a scholarly book on a subject that disagreed with you? And it, it's amazing. If I've gotten any answer so far, it's been one or two. It's, hmm. it's just not done. Do you find that Christian apologetics uh, do that quite often? Is read article, read books and articles that they disagree with that disagree with them? I find they do it much more often. I find many of the apologists that. I hang around with and such that we know the arguments of our opponents because we've read them mm -hmm. and we know them better than they do. I mean, I still remember being on Peter Bogosian's page again before he banned me and some of my friends and he put up a post about reading Bart Ehrman's misquoting Jesus and he said, yeah, the apologists they are not going to go near this one and we jumped all over that one. I mean, it was, it was payday for us because as we say, yeah, most of us here have already read it. Here's our response. I mean, I, I was able to say, yeah, I've already read the book. Here's a review I wrote of it, okay? <laughs> uh, hey, do you know the work of Jonathan Haidt? No. He, he, has a, he does some interesting stuff on, uh, on uh, morality, uh -huh. and, and, this is, and this is sort of applies to what we've just been talking about. He found that, uh, you know, Conservatives and, and progressives have different bases for morality. Uh -huh. uh, but what's really interesting is when he asked conservatives to describe how progressives understand certain issues, they could do that. Uh -huh. But the reverse was not true. Progressives could not, you know, when they, when they had to answer questions as a conservative, they, they simply could not do that. And, and I wonder, you know, and of course that's overgeneralizing, but, you know, atheists do tend to be progressive, and I wonder if that carries over into their inability to, to truly understand where uh where where uh people of faith come from yes. uh and whereas you know obviously and obviously you know nick that there's a uh there is an anti-intellectual strain within uh within within christianity absolutely which, yeah so you know so i'm definitely not talking about all christians but right. i find that christians who are christians and and are intellectual do tend to know uh, multiple sides of arguments and it makes us a little bit more careful in our arguments than what we run across against uh, uh, at least certain atheists. Yeah, we want to make sure clear. There are certainly many atheists out there who do read both sides of the argument and do honestly know how to debate the argument well. And yes, there are unfortunately too many Christians out there who will never pick up a book on scholarship whatsoever and who are very anti-intellectual. And sadly, it seems a lot of them are teaching at seminaries and Bible colleges a lot of times. So this isn't, when we're, we're making statements like this on the data you're presenting, this isn't something like across the board, this is what all atheists are like, this is what all Christians are like, etc.
Yeah. Oh, yeah. I always have to be careful that when I'm, especially when I'm doing social sciences, because, you know, just, you know, like I said, when I was talking about who tends to be Christianophobic, I'm telling you white males, educated and, and wealthy, then you can't go to a white male, educated, wealthy person and say, hey, you're Christianophobic, because it doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, and sometimes when I teach, students don't always get that until I illustrate something like, well, you know, men are taller than women, but not all men are taller than all women. So right. these, these are tendencies. These are not absolutes. Yeah. Now, one other aspect that you discuss in the book is that these people tend to dehumanize Christians and show open hostility towards them in, in some ways, dehumanizing and hating Christians, which yes. it, it, it's very troublesome to me because it seems like in our public discourse, the word hate is thrown around way too easily and a lot of times hate is always treated as a negative and you know yeah. I always want to tell people you know there are some things you should hate and you'd better hate and there's something wrong with you if you don't if you don't hate them yeah yeah and you know remember I'm writing this book as a scholar right. this, is, this is an academic book and so when I talk about hate I'm, I'm defining it the way it's been defined in other academic research right and then using the uh, comments of some of my respondents to uh to show that, you know, yeah, that, that what we call hate really does exist. So I'm not using it yeah. in a sort of political sense, hate speech or anything like that. Right. What I find really interesting, though, is the dehumanizing part. Right. And, and, once, and once again, I, I went to what I think is the best arc on dehumanization, where the author breaks it down into the different aspects of what dehumanization is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and without going all into it, there's one particular type of dehumanization where he breaks it down, and I find examples of that all throughout the comments of my respondents. And so I do think that we can reasonably talk about uh, that there's a group, there's a group that's so, that's fairly powerful, you know, because they're wealthy and, and, and all of the things I've talked about. And they actually have a dehumanizing attitude towards conservative Christians, mm-hmm. uh, that they see them as less than. Uh, and we know this happens. To, this happens to other groups. Christians are not the only ones that face this. Clearly, that's the case. Uh, but we know today that the group that does tend to dehumanize Christians tend to be more powerful than groups that tend to dehumanize uh, most other groups. Now, unfortunately, I have to admit that too often Christians have done things that have made them fit into a lot of the categories that 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 they're put in. I mean, one such thing to about is the, the coarseness that people are seen mm-hmm. as Christians that were seen as rude and offensive and I'm thinking about this because just I think it was last Saturday my wife and I were out driving around and we saw street preachers out there and personally these guys usually drive me crazy because <laughs> they, they really don't know what they're talking about a lot of times and they're just yeah. waving their Bibles and saying repent and I told her, you know, so many times I like to just stop, put on an atheist hat, and see what happens. Yeah. And she said, why don't you? And so we did. I mean, towards the end, when we told them we were very Christians, we started getting a lot of hostility from, you know, I mean, it wasn't open with it, but I mean, you the same exact. You know, I don't see any fruit in your lives, and I don't see the Holy Spirit in you at all. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that—that's the kind of thing that you see. And of course, so many atheists think about people like Westboro Baptist and things like right. that, and say, "Well, this is what all Christians are like." 
Yeah, there's there's no doubt that. Uh, well, first, you know, Christians were still fallen. We still sin, right. and and I think, and this is just my observation: the most legalistic person people there are, as far as Christianity, are new Christians and and people who are have Christianophobia. Right. You know, both groups. You know, want to hold Christians to this to the standard which we're not going to reach in this lifetime. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I agree with you. There are Christians who feed into this. Uh, all the yeah. characteristics, the negative characteristics, I, I said, are there Christians who are intolerant? Of course. Yeah. Are there Christians who, you know, there are there Christians who want to have a theocracy? There's a few of those out there even. Yeah. Uh, so so you know, all those characteristics they they are out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you can say that about any stereotype. Mm-hmm. You know, stereotype of African Americans. You know, African Americans are are dumb. Are there some dumb African Americans? Yeah, I've had some in my classes, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is not that does not make the stereotype accurate. Uh, and in fact, uh, a colleague of mine uh, actually did some research and found that most of the stereotypes are not true. Mm-hmm. That, that that Christians are not, uh, you know, uh, that, that that Christians actually uh, engage in more pro-social behaviors than non-Christians and. and uh, and they're not necessarily more intolerant than others, and things of this nature. Right. But th- but there's but you're always going to find examples that you want to find. Uh, what where I feel where I feel some sympathy towards some people with Christianophobia, although I don't feel sympathy towards their outcomes, what they want to do, but how they got there, is you know some of them tell you know in in my in my uh, research I asked them about you know about their attitudes and how they come about it and. Some of them tell stories of you know being kicked out of the house or or right. or having a youth minister seduce her or things of this nature. So there's some real tragedies out there. I'm, oh I'm, yes. And I, I I you know I'm not for a minute going to say well these people none of these people have any basis for for having resentment towards Christians because some of them cl- clearly does. Huh. But you know I I think that as a group it's it's really gone overboard and and uh, and. I'll, 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 I'll tell you this story, a personal story that shows, sort of show, you know, even though, even if you have something negative happen by a group, that it's very dangerous to paint the whole group that way. Mm-hmm. In my life, my very first girlfriend uh, was in graduate school, and she's white, and we were broken up by her, by her mother, and her mother was a strong feminist, but she did not like the fact that her white daughter was going out with a black guy. Well, I could have, from that point on, said, you know, feminists are a bunch of hypocrites. You know, feminists, you know, they're they're a bunch of racists. Right. But I know that that problem was her problem. You know, it wasn't all feminists who had this problem. And so sometimes when, when you know, when there are some Christians who've done some, some awful things, I can sympathize with the person who's gone, gone to it. But at some point, you know, when a person has had enough uh, healing, you know, not obviously not right afterwards... You know, you got to realize that you can't paint everyone with the experience of what one or a few people did. Yeah. And when you're doing that, then you're being unfair to all the other people who are in that category. And I know that's a hard lesson for someone who's been victimized, but uh, if we're going to be honest, you know, that is something that we have to uh, look at, uh, you know, with with uh, us. We have to look, look at that and, and just confront it for what it is. Yeah, now, one other area that you talk about is the way that Christians are seen when it comes to sexual values, mm-hmm. for instance. Now, like, uh, like earlier this year, we, of course, had Fifty Shades of Grey come out. 
And then yeah. on the other side, we had a movie called Old Fashioned come out. And honestly, when I saw a trailer, I thought, this other position is so extreme. I really don't want it representing my position. Yeah. But a lot of a lot of people who are opposed to Christians here see us as trying to, you know, control what goes on in people's bedrooms and mm-hmm. we're sexual prudes and such. And, and when I hear that, I think, you must not know the Christians I'm hanging out with, especially the men that I hang out with, because that doesn't match any Christian man that I know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I must admit, I've not, I don't even remember seeing the trailer for Old Fashioned, so this is the first I've heard of this movie. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah but you're right as far as that uh, Christians as, as repressive want to get in the bedroom and and, mm-hmm. and control people, uh, you know part of the charge of homophobia comes from that you know that they care about what happens in the bed uh, of people and things of this nature and it's all part of the whole the whole notion of Christians as intolerant uh, as uh, why into uh, some of theocracy and, and some of, some of things of this nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and we're 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 told that repeatedly that if we oppose this, that we oppose homosexuality, we just want to go and interfere with what people do in their bedrooms and think no, most of us really don't care what we do. I mean, we care in the sense that we think it's wrong, but we're not going to go and barge in and knock on everyone's doors. We just don't want to have to be out there, be forced to celebrate it, as it were. Yeah, yeah, I and you know you're touching on the issues of religious freedom and. And I do think that one of the things missing in the religious freedom debate uh, nationally uh, is that, I, you know, when you look at it, uh, it seems like there's one side that uh, want, that the way the narrative goes, they want to use the religious freedom to, for bigotry. The other side, you know, it wants to have freedom everywhere. Mm-hmm. In the national debate, though, in that other side, uh, to some degree, some of those individuals are motivated by Christianophobia. I'm I'm totally convinced of that. That uh that the whole debate on on uh homosexuality is a way in which they can uh they can silence Christians. And and in my research, I mean silencing Christians was one of the things that came out often. That Christians should not be in the public square, this sort of thing. And and so I'm not saying that everyone that supports uh same sex marriage that they're doing it to silence Christians. By no means am I saying that. Right. But there are some that 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 is this is an opportunity to do that, and I, I do believe there are some that that they're trying to take this opportunity to do that. And to me, that changes the debate around a little bit. It's not that this one side wants freedom, this one side wants uh, equality, the other side wants to use freedom to, to bash equality. That side that wants equality also wants to wants to uh, uh, contain. Uh, I hesitate to say oppress, <clears throat> but at least contain and marginalize. Uh, groups that they don't like, and so you know, to say that that one side's virtuous and the other side has these evil motivations. Well, you can you can find evil motivations in both sides of this debate if we're really right. honest about it. Now, something else that's brought out about the attitudes towards Christians, and we can find this in a number of the new atheists. Sam Harris has said if you gave him a magic wand and he could remove either all religion or all rape from the world. He would choose religion. Christopher Hitchens wrote the book, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. Mm-hmm. Richard Dawkins has that documentary about the root of all evil and religion being the problem. Right. There. And, and I think Bill Maher even has this in his Religious 
him with this idea that Christians, not just Muslims, who we can often see exoterrorism from, but Christians are some of the most dangerous people on the planet. They want to drive us to an early apocalypse, and they will destroy our society if they're left unchecked. Yeah, that, that's part of that theme of bringing us back to the dark ages and things of that nature. And, mm-hmm. and I don't do this in this book, but I've actually thought about taking on one of the components of this, which is that uh, religion is a source of war. Uh, and uh, I may write an, an article, maybe for an apologetics journal of some sort, about how, you know, if you really want to look at source of war, you have to look at Marxism as a source of many of our larger wars. And Marxism, if you understand Marx, Marx was driven by his atheism to a certain extent. He he argued that the critique of religion was over with, therefore we have to move on to this new society, this new society is communism, and a lot of Marxism was to bring about that new society, and of course a lot of people died uh, in the course of that. So, you know, and, and there's research that shows that at least Christians, I don't know about other religions, at least Christians are less likely to engage in domestic violence, less likely to, uh, to abuse their kids, less likely to commit crime. So, you know, this whole... Uh, a meme of Christians being more violent, just uh, you know, you can you can you can believe whatever you want, mm-hmm. but the evidence just does not back it up. I mean, I can believe that that you know that the sky is purple right now, but the evidence is it's not. Yeah, for anyone interested, we did interview Matthew Flanagan just a couple of weeks ago, and we did talk about this some towards the end with religious violence, talking about true crusades and like that. And I like to just give people a list of wars in history and say, okay. What religion was the cause of this? Because usually you'll find it's not religion so much as politics, which is often using religion mm-hmm. as an excuse to bring about what they want. Right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I'm not an, I'm not enough of a historian. I, I know some people have done some really interesting historical stuff. Yeah. Uh, and from what I remember, it's estimated that 7% of all wars or, or something like that, or maybe 8%, could be connected to this is a religious war because they, they do exist obviously ISIS yeah. that's a religious war uh, but 92% are not and so can religion cause war of course it can. I mean a religious person is capable of committing heinous crimes yes of course yeah. but is is it the cause of war is that a major cause of war it appears that it is not yeah and it, if we're going to say religion contributes towards violence but we can also say science can contribute towards violence. I mean, look at what, look at the high-tech weapons and such yeah. that we can build. I mean, I've got a blog post where I've got on there a picture of Hiroshima after the bomb there and just say, science, it works. <laughs> now, I don't mean that to dehumanize science at all, right. of course. It's just saying, you know, if you're going to look at this, you have to take, consider the bad and the good. Yes, there are some people who've done some bad with religion, but there are a lot of people who have done a lot of good with religion, but for too many people on <clears throat> on both sides, that we're really talking about the, the non-Christian side now, it's entirely black and white thinking that there there can be no compromise. Well, I don't know if you ever heard the research of Bob Woodbury, no. uh, but he uh, actually looked uh, at missions because you know missionaries get a bad rap. You know, the missionaries came in and they, they, they destroyed the native cultures. and I mean, that's, that's the rap you get. Well, you actually looked at the outcomes of the cultures where missionaries went and the ones they did not. And mm-hmm. we found, it, and, and, you know, this is off the top of my head, but he found that the ones where the missionaries were, were, were better. They were better mm-hmm. economically, they were better educationally, they had better health care services. Mm-hmm. And so what he documents, and, you know, 
looking at a lot of missionaries across the across the world and different continents and you know very sound research published in the highest ranked uh, uh, I think political science journal. Uh, what he finds is that you know the missionaries, uh, the theft of the missionaries, regardless of what they actually did, whether regardless of whether they were rude or or, or oppressive, uh, the long-term effect was was positive, uh, undoubtedly so. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, well, have Christians done awful things? Of course, uh, there's no reasonable person will deny that. Mm-hmm. But uh, we only get we tend to only get one side of that story, as you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we're going to talk about how missionaries have screwed up sometimes, then we also need to talk about the overall effect of missionaries, which Woodbury shows to be positive. Yeah, uh, Sam Harris, in fact, even when he talks about some of these atheistic groups that have done great evil, he says, you know, these people came to atheism with a religious mindset. So really, this, this can still be blamed on religion. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah, yeah, Harris' argument is very, very weak. Uh, wasn't it, wasn't Harris the one who says, or maybe it was Dawkins? Harris the one who says Hitler uh, or no, Stalin was actually religious because he was a he's a choir he was uh, an altar boy or something like that. I mean, Stalin of all people, Hitler Hitler wasn't religious either. But at least you can make an ar- halfway decent argument that kind of he, you know, there may be some religion in his regime. But Stalin, a totally atheist regime, and you're going to blame religion on that. I mean. Uh, it's hard to take Harris seriously after reading that. Well, he, Stalin was more of an altar boy. He had gone to seminary, but he just developed this hatred towards yeah. God somehow. And no, I don't know the story behind that entirely, but that is a way that Christians are seen. A- another way we should touch on it quick that Christians are seen, we've discussed this a little bit, is that Christians are automatically irrational. Uh, there was, I, I don't m- remember if you discussed it in a book or not, there was a... a newspaper several years ago that came out with an article and they said that Christians are people who are, tend to be uneducated and easily led. And yeah, they I remember had, that they had hundreds of PhD Christians writing in with their credentials immediately. Well, you know, that, that, that's interesting that you bring that up because that, you know, that person was really exhibiting the, the characteristics the stereotypes that people in Christophobia have, you know, mm-hmm. uh, easily led. I mean, that came across so often in, in my respondents, you know, dumb, mm-hmm. uh, not able to critically think, mm-hmm. uh, uneducated. Uh, that's what I didn't mention, that Christians, you know, that they're ignorant, that they, they don't have very much education. Uh, I mean, whoever wrote that, I, I, would, I would bet dollars a donut that this person ha- would score high on a Christophobia scale if I, if I devi- developed one. It, it's again so very ironic because the these same people. I mean, I was talking to my father-in-law about this just yesterday, and he said, "You know, a lot of atheists we are mock Christians who get into the intelligent design movement." And I'm not defending intelligent design here. I'm just giving an example from him. And he said, "You know, we've got about maybe a hundred scientists or so that are in this movement." And atheists will look and mock that and say that we shouldn't be buying into this at all. And then you have one scholar who writes a book that gets peer-reviewed on the idea that Jesus never existed, arguing for that. And I'm talking about Richard Carrier, of course. Yeah. And all of a sudden the atheists are saying, ooh, this is a huge move in New Testament studies. This is a, a claim that we should take seriously. You think, have a little bit of consistency here. <laughs> yeah, uh, 
I, you know, this is not my area of expertise, but I have been following the carrier situation kind of amusingly, uh, you know, as far as uh, the whole Jesus myth thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I've, I've just come to the conclusion that Jesus mythers are on the same parallel with 9-11 truthers and, oh, uh, yes. and, and, and birthers. Yeah. Uh, and that's, the reason I bring that up is because Christians are charged with being gullible in believing anything and when you look at the mythicist idea it's got some of the worst ideas out there and unfortunately I meet too many atheists who seem to have the idea of well I agree with it so it works I mean it, it, it seems to be this mindset that if you meet something and it argues against Christianity it has to be true and if you meet a claim and it argue it's supportive of Christianity or it's neutral we must view it with the utmost suspicion yeah. Uh, have you heard of confirmation bias? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I fear you did. Yeah, and, you know, and here's, here's the thing. Uh, confirmation bias affects everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether you're a Christian or not Christian, you know, confirmation bias, you have to fight against that. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so when people say, hey, the Christians, sometimes some Christians do the confirmation bias, and they're, yeah, they're right. But then they forget that they, too, are subject to confirmation bias. Right. And, and so... Uh, the, uh, the the critique of Christian phobia, people with Christian phobia, that Christians are gullible, uh, to some degree is true because we are all gullible, and if we're not all careful, then we will fall prey to our confirmation bias. Uh, and so the thing with the mythers is is it really just illustrates that out. Uh, yeah. I even did a little bit of research, and I, I got an article published. Uh, you know, there's some studies that argue that Christians and religions are less intelligent than others, and they use these tests. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I took one of those tests, and I took it apart, and I changed some of the dynamics so that the assumptions were different. So that now, instead of you know assumptions that would trip up Christians through their confirmation bias, I changed it so I trip up atheists through their confirmation bias. And then I ran that test, and I found out that the atheists were no better at dealing confirmation bias than the Christians were. Right. So, you know, that that's just reality in which some people just have a hard time accepting. And that's why whatever field you're studying in and learning in, it is always important to read the best material that you can on the other side. I mean, I'm sure you as a sociologist, if someone presents some a book that's peer-reviewed saying, no, there's not Christianophobia in the U.S., you're going to be wanting to get your hands on that book as soon as you can and go through and see what you say. Hey, is there anything I've missed here that maybe this guy did catch on to? Well, yeah, uh, you know, there's been so little study on this topic that I can't honestly say I cannot honestly say that there is a good response uh, article or book yet. I will tell you that on compromising scholarship, there are a couple of uh, uh, studies that work against it, mm-hmm. uh, but neither one of them is strong enough that 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 does not convince me that there is an academic bias. But that yeah. at least you know. Uh, there's a couple of studies that suggest that well maybe it's, this bias isn't there or it's not there strong enough. Uh, but uh, but I have my reasons why they uh, that they're, they're not convincing to me. But yeah, I do want to keep up with with the best arguments against it, yeah. uh, against my topics as I as I as I can find them. Yeah, that that's part of just being a good researcher. You have to read material disagrees with you, and when people come in and present these books, you're like I me. Mean, I try being on Peter Bogosian's face and say. Yeah, yeah, I've I've already read it. Okay, I mean, I, I had someone giving me an argument from the mythicist David Fitzgerald a few days ago. I was saying, look, I'm sorry, you don't know his argument. I've read the book. I know the argument. I know it better 
than you do right now, because I can tell you're missing it. And here's the big problem with it, and it was still just not computing at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I guess you have to decide at certain points with certain individuals that discussion is no longer feasible. Yeah. I run a blog, and, and you know, I, I engage with my, my people who comment on it, but, you know, I get to a point to where it's just reduced down to either name-calling or, or, or basically they simply uh, read loggerheads, and so, you know, I just have to just call it a day. Now, I'd like to remind everyone right now that you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. My guest is George Yancey. We're talking about a book he co-wrote with David Williamson called So Many Christians, So Few Lions. But if you're here next week, we're going to have a shorter show. It's just going to be one hour long, but we're bringing back a guest who's been on before. We're going to bring back E. Calvin Beisner again. We're going to be talking about prosperity and poverty. It's going to be another show talking about economics and what a difference it makes to Christian projects and what's a good position we should take on economic theory. So now we're going to get back to George Yancey and the book So Many Christians, So Few Lions. Now, we could ask that we know that, I mean, if we go with what your book says so far, and I think your book's pretty conclusive on it, it's pretty good evidence for it, that there is Christianophobia in the United States, and it's more than just that these people don't like Christians. I, I think one of the contentions you're arguing for is kind of we're, we're in a bitter war, and it's about what they want, where it's all about who's going to control the future of our nation. Is that what you're thinking? Well, yeah, that's a big part of what I'm thinking. And, and you know, one, one thing that I want to point out is that uh, the individuals with Christianophobia they have certain values, and, mm-hmm. and these values really help dictate what they argue, what they want. Uh, they value separation of church and state. They value religious neutrality, things of this nature. And because of this, they are, are very hesitant to endorse something that directly, overtly punishes Christians. Mm-hmm. So if there was, if someone was trying to pass a law saying that if you're a Christian that you have you know, that you have to pay more in tax or something like that. Uh, my suspicion is that most of these individuals would not support that law. Right. Now, having said that, uh, and this is where my where having studied race ethnicity really helps me. There's a concept in race ethnicity uh, known as uh, adver- uh, I'm sorry, it's slipped in my mind, uh, adversive effects. Uh, that so- there are policies that may not intend to uh, to disproportionately hurt people of color, but they do. Right. Uh, now, it may be that someone actually symbolically wants to hurt people of color, so they push that policy. But yeah. uh, for whatever reason, this, these policies uh, are put on the books, and they and they have an adverse effect on people of color. And I think that I'm able to show that there's some of this attitude among people with Christianophobia that what they would like is policies that have an adverse effect, but that do not directly, overtly punish Christians because then they cannot, their social identity as being tolerant, as not being bigoted, would be challenged. Right. If they, if they were pushing for a policy such as jailing Christians or something like that, but it's not a challenge if they're pushing for a policy and they can find some other reason for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, let me just give you an example, okay. uh, and I forget whether I used this in the book or not. I think I did. At the time, it was only Vanderbilt. 
uh, Vanderbilt University had this uh, had this what an all comers policy, and basically this policy was that if you if you formed a student organization, you not only had to let anyone who wants to join the organization, but anyone who wants to to go for leadership in the organization. Well, a lot of the Christian groups say, well, you know, our organization is a Christian organization, and people can come; they want to come, but our leaders have to be have to be Christian. And Vanderbilt says you cannot discriminate based on religion. Now, on the surface, this sounds like, okay, you're, you're being this way to everyone. But in reality, they're not. I mean, if you're forming an organization uh, based on political matters, then religion is not. If you're forming the bowling league, you know, who cares about religion? Right. If you're forming a Christian organization, then uh, obviously it matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what's happened at Vanderbilt and now some other places, Christian organizations have been, have been kicked off campus. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people would say, well, what about other religious groups? What's interesting is that Yale was going to do the same thing. The Muslim or the Muslim student group said, no, we don't want this, and Yale backed down. Mm. My suspicion is that the Muslim groups, knowing that, you know, chances are no one's going to really try to take them over or, or infiltrate them or anything like that, didn't put up a fuss at Vanderbilt or some of these other places, and thus, you know, this policy was allowed to, to, to survive. Mm. Uh, I suspect if Jewish groups had done done the same thing, that if they had said, no, we don't want this, they, that they would not have gotten forward. Mm-hmm. But Christian groups, and I know that Christian groups try to, uh, some of them try to really negotiate and, and point out, you know, what if we have someone who starts off, they're a Christian, and midway through the year, they say become an atheist, you know, now they're the president of our organization. And I know in Vanderbilt, when, when one person brought that up, the uh, person in charge says, well, then that's just too bad. Which you know, which really tells me what their where their attitude really is. You know, we really don't want you to be here, but this is the way we can do it without being being a bigot about it. Yeah. So this this is what I think we need to watch out for. And and as we look at public policies and debates, uh, you know, if what I write gets more traction and people can be more aware of these policies, then we can start asking these questions that we've already asked in race ethnicity, asking these questions about adverse effects uh, as concerns Christian groups as well. We could also consider that one way to win this is there are a lot of atheists out there, including Dan Barker's Freedom from Religion Foundation, that want to remove tax-exempt statuses from churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, that came up, too, uh, among my respondents, uh, as far as uh, believing that it's not fair for churches to get tax-exempt status where other groups uh, uh, can, cannot. Although, really, almost, and, and I'm not a lawyer, so... Uh, I take this with a grain of salt, but just like any voluntary organization uh, can get tax exempt status, I don't think this is something special to religious groups per se. I might be wrong on this, uh, uh, but that was a, a theme that came up quite a bit. Yeah, I mean, if the Secular Student Alliance, I, mean, I can't tell you if they do or not, but if they got tax exempt status, I'm not going to complain. They're not a for profit organization. And if you want to say, let's have us be across the board for any organization for any belief system. I'm going to say, sure, go ahead. It's not going well, to Well, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim. I'm not a Mormon. I'm not a Jew. Yeah. But, uh, you know, those those groups get taxes into or, uh, as well, and, and well yeah, should. I, mean, I, don't, I don't believe that only Christian groups should get tax exempt. And right. so, uh, you know, it may be that that attitude went more towards an anti-religious uh, mm. type of perspective than anti-Christian, but it is interesting that they brought this up in light of talking about Christian or Christian right, that this sort of tax-exempt uh, issue came up. Uh, so, uh, 
And once again, you know, if Christian, if you, if we are to take Texas status away from most organizations, then I think we, as a society, we have to rethink about other voluntary organizations. Which I don't think there's any any danger of this happening in the foreseeable future. Yeah, when you were talking about Jews and Muslims and Mormons and such, one thing I've told my wife Allie a few times is I said, you know, if a Muslim group came to our city and they were wanting to build a mosque, you know, I would argue with them on their doctrine whenever I could. But I would also be arguing for their right to build a mosque and worship within the laws of the land as they see fit. Yeah. That's what makes our country so great. Yeah. Uh, and it, it, yeah, and it's kind of ironic because, you know, a place like Vanderbilt was actually arguing, well, this is going to create more diversity on campus. But really, when you, uh, when you limit groups and what they can have for their leaders, you're creating less diversity on campus. Right. And so some of these groups that are saying, well, we want more diversity, uh, we... You know, I guess you have to be a little bit cynical, but I think they want more diversity as long as it doesn't include conservative Christians. Yeah. You know, one other aspect that comes up with this, and we've talked about it a little bit when I brought up intelligent design, is the role that science is going to play in our future because there are so many people opposed to anything that looks like what could be called creationism coming into a science classroom. Yeah. And, and evolution came up quite a bit among my respondents. Uh, a lot of them talk about how Christians they want to push they want to push evolution out of schools and creationism, and it's all part of the larger theme of anti-science and, and you know the connection of science and reason. Uh, you know that that was a very very common theme that uh, this fear that Christians you know came back to the dark ages uh, where we don't do we're not doing science any longer and things of this nature. Yeah, I, I would like people know if you are interested in fact in what atheists call the dark ages to please go back and look at June 8th of 2013 show where we had James Hannum on and we talked about you know, his book God's Philosophers about how there really was science going on very well in the medieval period it's a really fascinating topic if anyone out there is interested in it and you know, I, I've made it a point in my projects, I don't really debate science that much when it comes to questions like evolution and things of that sort. I really don't care about it. You know, I've heard people say, well, if you want the Christian viewpoint taught in the classroom, how about the Hindu viewpoint? How about the Muslim viewpoint? I said, go ahead. I mean, if you meet some, if you got a student in the classroom who say a Hindu and he really thinks the Hindu version of creation is true, let him come forward and share his view. I don't have any problem with that whatsoever. Yeah, uh, you know, I personally on the whole evolution thing, uh, it's not that big of a deal to to me as a Christian. Mm-hmm. I uh, I think the origin of life is a much more interesting question than evolution per se. Uh-huh. But uh, you know, and and that's where scientists are are really stumped as to how life came from non-life. But uh, evolution itself. Uh, you know, there's evidence for it, fine. There's evidence against it, fine. I, it's not an issue that I really pay that much attention to. You know, you actually did meet some people, though, who said they wanted to change the law and change it in a way where it would be very easy to punish Christians. There was a few, and, and I did include a few in the book because I want their voice represented. Uh, to be honest, the vast majority of my respondents uh, shied away from that sort of overt law changing. Yeah, now, a lot of this centers around the idea of separation of church and state, right? 
Yeah, the, the argument that, you know, and, and by the way, this is the argument that's used to try to take Christians out of the public square. Right. That Christians really don't have a right to uh, try to change the government because they're Christians, they're religious, and therefore, you know, you want to keep church state separated. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of these people also were saying that education is the answer. And this really does impact what we've got going on. I think it was John Dewey years ago, who was part of the original Humanist Manifesto and wanted the education system to be one that would be very open to teaching what he wanted. And we've seen a lot of negative aspects going on in the education system unfortunately especially when it comes to issues such as homosexuality being taught and now we're having things such as oh if a a boy identifies himself as a girl he can supposedly use the women's restroom and shower which I'm I'm thinking well there are going to be so many teenage boys out there who are going to be saying (laughs) they identify as women at this point (laughs) yeah this is something that I've been thinking about I haven't really written on it uh, per se, and whether I do, I don't know. But uh, I'm thinking about how education is being used to be what religion used to be, which is the uh, the legitimator of morality in a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I I think that part of the dogma that we see in education today is that when you have, and you know, and of course religious dogmas exist as well, but when you have to justify morality, it's hard to tolerate. Uh, different opinions mm-hmm. and so in, on our, our campuses uh, and I just blogged about this uh, our campuses there are certain things that you cannot you're not allowed to challenge and you mm-hmm. and, and not only are you not allowed to challenge if you do you're not allowed to be heard uh, and and for example and I don't want to get into debates about this I'm just using this as an example you know is there a rape culture on our campus uh, you know you're it's not. It's not that I have a problem with people arguing that there is. I mean, maybe they may be correct. My problem is that they don't. That at least many of them. I won't say all of them. Many of them do not want to have an actual debate on whether there is or there is not. Uh, as a college professor, you know, I'm disturbed by safe zones and trigger warnings oh, because yeah. I don't think there should be safe zones in, in college classes. Mm-hmm. I, I understand that some people, uh, you know. There's been trauma in their lives, and and, they, and certain topics they may need to tread tread on a little bit careful for them. Uh, and if someone comes to me about something like that, I definitely would try to work with that person. But as a general rule, a safe zone. I mean, if your ideas are good, then you, they should be challenged and they'll stand. If they're not good, mm-hmm. they should challenge and they should fall. And college is a place where that should happen, and, and it's not happening with certain ideas because of things such as safe zones and trigger warnings. Yeah, The Onion, a satirical magazine, had an article a while back, and I even shared on my Facebook with, college, college decides to celebrate one idea. And it was this whole page where I was like, yeah, we're going to all talk about this idea, and it's going to be the only idea we're going to talk about, and we're not going to have any contrary ideas. And a lot of us were looking at it saying, it's sad, but this satire sure sounds like exactly what we're seeing today. Well, that sounds like good satire. Good satire, you say, hey, you know, that's actually kind of true. Yeah. I mean, good satire, that's what you say. If it's bad satire, you go, well, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. But this, I mean, this is what's going on. This is why, for instance, it's really disturbing when I hear about 
college classes of people graduating and such who don't want to hear someone come and speak of a graduation because that person offers a different viewpoint. And I'm thinking, that's the whole point anyways of college. You're supposed to have your viewpoints challenged and you're supposed to think about ways and things that are different and foreign to you so you can learn how to better assess those when you get out in the real world. Well, you know, it's kind of ironic is that, you know, obviously you're very progressive if you go to college. You can easily go to classes that do not challenge your perspective mm -hmm. and go through college and not really rethink things. If you're a conservative and you go to a state school, this, and I think even for most Christian schools this is true, although not for all. If you're, if you're a political conservative and if you're a conservative Christian and you go to these schools, your ideas are going to get challenged. So in some ways, the conservatives are getting a better education than the progressives. Mm -hmm. uh, because at, at the end of the day, either they lose their conservatism, uh, which they, they had not well thought of well at all, or they come out stronger uh, and they, they come out better able to, to, uh, to think through why they believe what they believe. When I was a, well, I said I am a Christian, and when I was in graduate school uh, as a Christian, uh, because I was challenged so much, uh, some of the ideas of my faith, some of the aspects, some of the things I thought that Christian was supposed to be was actually fell away because I thought, no, that's not right. Yeah. But other things, I actually grew stronger in my beliefs because mm -hmm. it was challenged. I had to rethink things. I had to consider, you know, what, what was the evidence. And, and that's why, uh, you know, uh, one reason why I can never be an atheist is I've, I've, I've seen the arguments of atheism. And... Uh, you know, could I not be a Christian to be something else? That's possible, but it would be atheism because the arguments for atheism are so weak that uh, I just I I just could not do that to my brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm thinking that I mean, when I saw my Christian work, there are some views that I saw it down for. That view is absolutely bizarre. How can anyone hold to such a view? Today, that's my view. <laughs> In fact, because I've been able to change my mind and. The Bible college I went to, I disagreed with some of the main doctrines there. The seminary I went to, I did the exact same thing. I mean, I was very secretive about my disagreeing opinions, but I had my disagreeing opinions, and I really think I'm there for it. Because, I mean, if you just go to a place where you're just going to walk lockstep with everyone, you're not going to really be challenged. You're not going to grow. That's why I always encourage people when they come to me and say, hey, if you want to learn about this topic, okay, go out there and read the best books and read the best books on both sides because you're only going to do yourself a disservice if you just read one side. And again, that's why when I'm dialoguing with unbelievers, I'll ask them, okay, when was the last time you read a scholarly book on this topic by someone who disagrees with you? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question to ask. I think it's a great question to ask. And, and uh, Unfortunately, in some scholarly fields, there are no other sides because of just the way the paradox is set up. Mm -hmm. uh, but you could, you probably could find books by people who uh, maybe they're not technically scholars, but they're very well educated and they're very well reasoned. Uh, so you can at least get some perspective from from the other side of the issues. Yeah, and unfortunately, too often when I present a book such as say Michael Lacona's on the resurrection, I'll be told immediately, well. Look, he's a professor at HBU and he's a Christian. Don't you think he's automatically biased? Should I say, yeah, he's biased. 
just like every single other person on the planet. And if you're going to just going to say someone's biased, therefore I'm not going to listen to them, it, it's it's a way of ignoring the data. That's why I say bias is an excuse too many times to avoid looking at the real data. Yeah, that sort of reminds me of a, of a story when I was uh, when I was an adjunct where I was teaching a sociological religion and a race ethnicity class. And the professors were concerned about my sociological religion class because I'm a Christian, and no one questioned my race ethnicity class because I'm black. Uh-huh. It, it, it's, it's kind of a lovely double standard that shows up a lot of times, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, we all have our biases, and you know, the thing is to recognize them and then to uh, deal with them as best you can. Mm. Uh, and to try to compensate for them. And unfortunately, a lot of times in academia, and I have to admit, as I've gotten more and more academia, I've become more pessimistic about the, our ability to do science, our ability to do academic research, critical thinking, because I've, I, I run across so many examples of people who don't really engage in critical thinking. They just have an idea, and they're pushed the idea, and they don't consider alternatives. Mm. Now, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Deeper Waters podcast, and the Ministry of Deeper Waters, it's really supported by people like you out there, your average listener who's willing to make a donation, maybe ten, twenty, fifty dollars maybe, and maybe even on a monthly basis to support what's going on here because I really do try and bring the best people that I can on here and I don't pay them anything to come on. I can't pay them. They come and they give of their own free time, and a lot of times they'll send me these books for free to review. Uh, George sent me this book here, and I really thank him for it. I really do think it's an excellent book, and it's one that you should be reading and learning from. But we could really use the support of people like you. So let me tell you how to do that. So if you go to our blog, and you look at, on the left side, you're going to see something that tells you how to donate to Deeper Waters Ministries. It helps support the ministry of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries, Bank, something of that sort. And you'll find a link in there. And that link will take you to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You have gone to the right place. Okay, You go there and you make your donation and you can set it up if you want you to be a monthly donation. And then you email me or you email Debbie Lacona. You say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And you, we will make sure that that donation does go to us. And it is tax deductible, and we try and put every penny we can to the best use that we can. Now, you can also go on Amazon, and you can look in, in the, the store for it. You just type in Nick Peters there, and you'll find some of the e-books that I've written, and some of them that I've co-written. Co-written books like, say, Groundless, which is looking at Dan Barker, or Defining Inerrancy, which is a response to defending inerrancy, a look at the inerrancy debate. And one that I've written on my own is A Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed and what it means for Christians today. And then we've also got a link to an Amazon store on our webpage. It's about books that I've recommended. If you want to go and buy them from Amazon, you know, you can buy them at the same price. And, in fact, when you do that, we'll get a small proceeds from it. And this other one we're working on right now and getting on the site. I think, guys, if you want to buy the lady in your life, 
some jewelry, something special, and I can tell you, you know, a lot of women really do like that jewelry. And my own wife has a nickel allergy, so she can't wear a lot of jewelry, but she would sure love to get to wear a lot of jewelry. And they they really appreciate it when you get them jewelry many times. Not all women are like this, but some of them are. Let's suppose you want to buy that special piece of jewelry for that woman. How about doing it through Premier Jewelers? And you can go to my friend Lena. We're setting up a page there. That you can go and you order for her from her through Deeper Waters. And whatever you purchase from her, 25% of that purchase will go to Deeper Waters. Now, that's a pretty good deal. You can get the lady you want something special, and you'll be supporting the ministry at the same time. Now, George, do you have uh, any ministry or anything that you'd encourage people to support as well? Well, as you said up front, I'm trying to establish the first Christian Studies program mm -hmm. on a secular campus in the country. Uh, you know, I've documented the anti-Christian bias academia, and I, I believe that if we Christians are going to, especially as times have changed, uh, that we're going to, we can't just have our own Christian colleges, our own Christian media. We have to go into the culture, uh, the mainstream culture. Not that we're going to take over, but that at least we're going to have a presence uh, so that we can have work like some of Christian Social Lines be funded and, and, and supported and things of this nature. And, and other work, you know, work to, to support Christians who are, who, uh, doing ministry, you know, how can you do ministry in a better way, uh, uh, you know, like a youth ministry or, or, or a prison ministry, things of this nature. So I'm trying to establish uh, the, the Institute of Christian Studies at the University of North Texas. Uh, I'll be honest, you know, at this point, uh, we have a few resources, but not nearly enough. Uh, if we, you know, a fully funded institute would, would really, I think, impact not just North Texas, but other colleges might start considering, hey, do we want a Christian ministry, uh, 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 Institute of Christian Studies? There's all sorts of Islamic studies and Jewish studies uh, groups on campuses. A lot of Christians donate to their alma mater, and I understand that. But then, you know, you don't know, they don't know how, the, how it's spent. And I can tell you that uh, the money would be spent in ways that would further research that would help Christians. And I'm open to talking to people about certain projects, studies that they might be interested in and what it would take to do and things of this nature. So, uh, you know, beyond buying my books, which I always appreciate, uh, but uh, finding funding for for this institute would be important. Uh, there's a couple of ways in which you can you can go to the page and learn more about the institute and go to the uh, to the webpage in which you can donate, or you can email me directly, and I, you know, and we can talk about uh, funding and support. The uh, the first way is just to go to my website which is www.georgeyancey.com. Uh, that's G-O-R-G-E-Y-A-N-C-E-Y.com. And when you go there, uh, on the very last page, uh, I believe it says Institute for Christian Studies. You can click on that. It'll tell you a little bit more about it. It has a link to, to it, uh, and you can donate through that. The other way is if you want to go to uh, my, my page at University of North Texas, uh, merely go into the sociology department, uh, clicking on faculty uh, and people in the faculty. Uh, then you'll see you'll see me down there, uh, and then click on my name, and then there'll be a link in, on that page to the to the center. 
So uh, I think we could do some really good things. Uh, if you know someone who's talked about how we need we need Christians to uh, get into the mainstream of the culture, to get into academia, to have an impact, uh, I think this is a good way to do that. And once again, you know, I'm pretty open to talking to people. I won't I won't do research that compromises uh, good science. So you know, don't ask for me to do a hit job or or to, or to have my findings preordained because the only way I have legitimacy is if I take the approach that, uh, you know, I can find, I, I can have that null finding. I, I, yeah. I can have that null hypothesis come, come, come to true. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but there's a lot of areas in which we could, we could look to see, uh, find ways to improve, uh, to, to support Christians and Christian institutions. Let's move on to uh, chapter seven, which frankly was my favorite chapter in the book talking about Christianophobia in the United States and think this is for one that we can relate to the most because it's all about things that we see every day and these were things like a see you got these kinds of statements Maureen Dowd's talking about Christian conservatives work they like and she says avenge for mob revved up by rectitude running around with torches and hatchets after heathens and pagans and infidels which I mean, who who of us driving down the street hasn't seen a bunch of Christians together with hatchets and torches and such? Or uh, Ted Turner, who says Christianity is a religion for losers. Um, Elton John, from my point of view, I would ban religion completely, even though there are some wonderful things. I, I love the idea of the teachings of Jesus Christ and the beautiful stories about it, which I loved in Sunday school, and I collected all of their stickers and put them in my book. The reality is that organized religion doesn't seem to work. It turns people to hateful lemmings, and it's not very compassionate. And uh, Megan Fox, I believe it's really famous for the Transformer movie series, says, I'd borrow with him, Meg Tron, a fictional evil robot, and say, instead of the entire planet, can you just take out all the white trash, hillbilly, anti-gay, super Bible-beating people in middle America? I'd... Uh, Quote what Dana Jacobson said on ESPN, but I don't really talk that way. <laughs> and then Rosie O'Donnell, radical Christianity is just as threatening as radical Islam in a country like America. I mean, we we've all seen statements like these, and the scary thing is they are said out in public as if yeah, we can say it's just fine, and no one's really going to raise a stink whatsoever. Yeah, I put I include these statements, <clears throat> and. Yeah, a lot of people I'm not I don't I don't really follow like uh, Roseanne, mm -hmm. Rosie O'Donnell or anything like that. But you know I double and triple triple check to make sure that, that you know I didn't just get it from you know a a a conservative website or something like that. Right. These statements are really accurate, and I chose these things because they I thought these were statements that could have been made by any of my respondents. Right. I you know I thought these things fit into the sort of stuff my response was saying. So. You know, it's a way of saying, you know, what I'm, what I'm documenting, yeah, I have, a, I have a relatively small sample of a group of people, and I'm finding all these trends. But these trends are not limited to that. These trends are out there among individuals who, I, who are cultural leaders, mm -hmm. which to me suggests that their attitudes are very similar. Right. Uh, that, uh, that what I'm documenting in the other part of the book is, is clear among some of these. Uh, I think a lot of these are, are more uh, personality types, media types, and things of this nature. I suspect that if you had uh, college professors talking all the time on air, you you might get some statements 
uh, close mm-hmm. to some of this. If you, uh, yeah. That these are statements that cultural leaders tend to have, uh, and their attitude towards Christians is is reflected in that. Now, let me ask you, since you brought up college professors, we had the movie come out, I think it was last year, but God's Not Dead. <laughs> and a lot of people were saying, there aren't college professors out there like that. That is rather extreme. Do you think that it's quite difficult that there really are college professors out there like the one depicted in the film? Well, I was one of the people who said that this was ridiculous, that there aren't college professors out there like that. And then, uh, as, as it would happen, about two months later, I came across a story of a college professor who basically acted like that. So, mm. you know, I'm going to say that 99.9% of all college professors, even if they hate Christians to the T, would, would never do something like this. Mm. But after, after reading that story, I, I, you know, I can't say that that person doesn't exist absolutely okay. at all. Do you think as things keep progressing that we could see more and more professors showing up like that one? I think it's possible. Uh, I, I think that this one professor got a lot of pushback, and uh, I don't think we're to the point yet where you can easily just come to the class and say, look, you got to believe what I believe or you're, or you're going to fail or you're not going to pass or things of this nature. Mm-hmm. I think it becomes more and more difficult to do that. But are we going to see more attempts? We probably are. Yeah. But even if they're not just like the professor. There is still, no doubt, some hostility towards Christians and Christianity by college professors, isn't there? Oh, yeah, and, and, and of course it's not going to come out quite that way. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, there's certain pressures on professors to, believe it or not, students are able to put certain pressures on professors, uh, especially their parents if, if you're at, at a state school. Because uh, you start calling state legislatures, uh, then, you know, things get moving. So, so yeah, I don't I don't think we're gonna we're gonna see that. But I mean, uh, could it affect your grades? It, it may be in subtle ways. Uh, as I do- document, it could affect hiring, uh, whether you hire someone who's a Christian or not. It definitely affects the literature choice that you make. Uh, I think what press is more likely to do, rather than say believe the way I believe or you're gonna fail, is to just present a lot of literature that that makes Christians look very bad, and then your test over that literature and, and thus he or she makes sure that you understand just how awful conservative Christians are. Yeah. Now let's look at some other comments that these don't have the same kind of thing, but they fit the stereotype of images of Christians that some of the people you respond to said. Bill Maher says, when people say to me, you hate America, I don't hate America, I love America. I'm just embarrassed I've been taken over by people like evangelicals, by people who do not believe in science and rationality. Or Gene Roddenberry is the creator of Star Trek, says, there will always be the fundamentalism and the religious right, but I think there has been too much of it. I keep hoping that is temporary foolishness. Some of it will always be around because there will always be people who are so mean-spirited and such limited thinkers that their religious beliefs seem so logical that there is a God and so forth that nothing else than a limited concept can explain what the existence of a God can. There's been a lot of it lately, youth for Christ and that sort of thing. I'm hoping that this is just a bump in time. And then Roger Ebert, the movie reviewer, says, Conservatives in the heartland have persuaded themselves to vote against their own economic and social well-being because they consider hot-button issues more important than their incomes, economic chances, education, and the welfare of society at large. Their positions dovetail seamlessly with evangelical Christianity, and they accept hardship as a will of God when it seems more clearly to be the working of a top-lowered economy. Now, I'm thinking with a lot of these, I'm guessing that Many of these people haven't even really studied the claims that they're arguing about. And I'm thinking especially with Bill Maher, because 
I saw Religious when it was in the theaters, and it is a disaster to watch. I mean, when he's going to the Holy Land experience, and he's talking about, I believe it was Horace, and all these things about how he was born of a virgin, and all this stuff, and I'm watching this thing, oh, why couldn't I have been there? Because Bill Maher just really didn't know what he was talking about, but I'm sure there there were a lot of non-Christians in the audience who watched that say, yep, you tell them, you tell them. Yeah, I think it's back to that confirmation bias thing again, right. that, you know, if, uh, you're, and especially in this day and age of social media, you can find the voices that you want to hear, and you can just listen to those voices. And, and so I imagine that, uh, you know, quite a few people who have Christian phobia love to hear Bill Maher in part because they're going to confirm to them what they already believe. Yeah. I think that, you know, I actually find the Gene Roddenberry quote more more interesting because of the larger impact. I think I think he's had a larger impact than Bill Maher. Oh yeah, definitely. Because you know, of course, those who don't recognize Gene Roddenberry was creator of Star Trek. Yeah. And uh, and I even before I read this quote, I noted the sort of humanistic. Uh, and I, and by the way, you know I enjoy the show. All right, so I'm not I'm not I'm, you know I I ever watch it. I enjoy the show, but but I noticed the sort of humanistic themes that were embedded in Star Trek, uh, even the very first one with uh, with Captain Kirk and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that in many ways, uh, because it was embedded in the show, it wasn't this this guy out there arguing for it where we all know where he stands with this sort of show, uh, I think that that probably had more of an impact than, than, than Mar has and continues to have an impact because I think that those themes are still there, although I think they've dissipated a little bit in some of the later shows. Yeah, because few, fewer people will go and watch a mockumentary like Religious, but a lot of people sit down and say, hey, let's watch an episode of Star Trek or anything out there like that. And uh, I'm thinking that uh, Robbie Zacharias says, said that this is one of the best ways you can get your message out there is just get out there in pop culture where it's practically normal. I mean, I can think about this on, uh, for instance, TV shows with sexual ethics. I mean, the the idea is that, yeah, it, it's perfectly natural to sleep with that person on your first date and because that's what you see in the culture all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely has, has changed. And, and, you know, when you ask what's changed... Uh, the attitudes mm-hmm. uh, towards people away from Christianity. You know, I neglected to say that I do think that our sexual morality has been a big part of it. And to the degree that that has come to the church, uh, I think it's also uh, uh, let, it's also then the witness that the church has to the, lar- to the larger society. Even if uh, the larger society was making fun of us, if we really held to the sexual morality the way that we should, uh, they would at least know that we believe what we believe. But given that that's, you know, while Christians are less likely to engage in premarital sexuality than non-Christians, I think some people have said they're just as likely that's that's inaccurate. They're less likely they still engage in premarital sexuality uh, too often. Now, one example of this for sexual issues is that you've brought up in the book is cases of people who have studied to be counselors and such who are Christians and when it's found that they do not support homosexual behavior that they have to get like remedial counseling and training and such so they can have their views properly adjusted and such. Yeah, that's one case. I mean, I don't know if that's a, that's, that's a general trend or pattern, but in that one case, that, that doesn't clearly appear to be what, what occurred is that uh, 
and you know, I know that uh, what was it, about a week ago that uh, that the uh, that Clinton uh, was talking about how religion has to change to accommodate the times, yeah. and I do think we're going to get more comments like that in the coming in the coming uh, days, weeks, years. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and then you also contrast it with Dan Savage speaking at a school and hurling insults at Christians as they leave after he's been roundly criticizing the Bible and Christianity. You know, no one really bats an eye at that, but if someone went to a school and spoke out against homosexuality, you'd you'd see a rampage going on. Yeah, I, I, you know, and that was a, that was a big issue at the time I was writing. Uh, yeah. When I was writing, that you know, that was that was there was a videotape of that playing. And to me, that just struck me as a great example of Christianophobia. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, know, I don't know how else to explain that sort of attitude. Uh, if I was speaking in front of a bunch of high schoolers, if I don't like a certain group, I'm definitely not going to berate them in front of the high schoolers because that's not my position. Uh, but you know, Dan Savage felt perfectly free to do that, and I think he apologized for part of it later on, but not all of it. Yeah, and this isn't just going on. I mean, like we've said. But, you know, earlier, it's not just high schools and colleges and public culture. You could put in a search term, something like something similar on the internet, and you'd find it popping up in internet forums everywhere, wouldn't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, depending on what search term. I mean, you know, just look around on Facebook. Uh, yeah. If you have enough friends, you're going to have some that I think are going to have some Christianophobic tendencies, mm-hmm. and you can go to their uh, Facebook pages and see the sort of conversations they have. Yeah. And you can see these stereotypes. Just out in day, people just just saying them. Uh, so, you know, Christianophobia is not racism. It's not anti-Semitism. It's not Islamophobia. It's different. It has its own unique challenges. So I'm not saying that you know some of the problems that we see from some of these other problem from these other intolerances we also see in Christianophobia. But one of the one of the uh, I think differences between it and the others is that it is out in the open. It is 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 more acceptable. I think I used the illustration of uh, of uh, Mel Gibson mm. when he was caught saying a lot of anti-Semitic things uh, and, and you know, it's called, and basically from what I'm told is he has a hard time getting getting a movie nowadays. Whereas the comments that you made earlier uh, were, some of them were by media personnel who were not fired, who were not blackballed. Mm. And, you know, they're, there may be just as much anti-Semitism as, as there is Christianophobia in society. I don't think so, but maybe there is. But it is hidden, and people, you know, people have to, they can't be open with it. And I think there's consequences to the reality of that you can be open with your, with your anti-Christian hatred, but you can't with, with other types of hatred. Now, what we have to ask at this point is we've got all this data here, and it's showing that there is Christianophobia in the U.S. So... What are we supposed to do with this data? What what do you really want people to walk away from this book thinking when they're done? Well, one of the reasons why I really wanted to do this book was, you know, after I did my compromising scholarship book, I realized that in academia, because of the bias in academia, examining anti-Christian bias is not going to be high on the list of people mm-hmm. in academia. And I know it would take someone who could see it, who was exposed to it, to actually jump up and do it, I knew I, I knew how to document it. I knew how to find it, and so that's why I, uh, I, I wanted to do this book. 
I want there to be an awareness of Christianophobia at the very beginning. I think we Christians have to have to consider um, what we're going to do in order to deal with it. So, uh, so you know, that's a different uh, angle to it. But I think there needs to be an awareness of it. In my dream world, which I know that if it ever happens, we're many years away. Yeah. People will be as hesitant to stereotype sort of Christians as they are liberal Jews. Uh-huh. They'll be as hesitant to uh, to 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 make derogatory comments out in public about Christians as they are about Muslims. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, and that's not saying they're all going to become Christians, but that there's a level of respect that I think is missing right now. And uh, and at this point, this book can, can can start the process of getting that recognition. I think there I think there has to be more work. Mm-hmm. And one you know one of the things I would love to do if I got enough funding through my uh, through my institute is to follow up this with with some better research. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I hope this book starts the process of recognizing that yeah, bigotry against Christians is bigotry. Mm-hmm. It's not acceptable. Uh, it's not acceptable ones against other groups. It should not be acceptable ones against Christians. And I think today, unfortunately, in some very powerful subcultures, it's very well accepted. If a non-Christian is reading this book, what do you really want them to get when they walk away from it? When what do you want them to think about their own worldview? Uh, I I would hope that they will be self-reflective enough to recognize mm-hmm. that yeah, this is a problem. Uh, you know that they can look at the data, and 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 of course other scholars can look and critique the data, and 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 that's that's academia. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not offended when when that happens. You're probably hoping it happens. Yeah. You know. I mean, uh, you know, if, if people don't come by and critique the book, then you know, I'm going to argue then there's no critique of the book. And of course, that's not true. Uh, all scholarly work can be critiqued. Right. Uh, so, uh, you know, but I, I hope that they at least consider, well, you know, if, if they don't buy completely that this, this is a possibility and that there are certain issues and problems that can arise from that, and that perhaps in, in a desire to not want to be caught up in religious bigotry, that they begin to, uh, to wonder how they can deal with this problem. One of the, one of, one of the turning uh, points of when we look at any sort of tolerances is when people who are not affected by it start working against it. So when whites start working against racism, when men start working against sexism, you know, that those are key points towards really ending, ending or at least minimizing that type of intolerance. I don't, there's not ended, but, but at least it's not out in the open. So really, as much as you and I as Christians can talk about this, until non-Christians also begin to, to not want to live in a bigoted society and to work against this, uh, there's a limit to what we can do. Uh, and also in my last chapter, uh, I would I would like to see diversity programs. Uh, I would like to see sensitivity training not be content specific. Mm-hmm. So rather than teaching people don't hate blacks or don't hate homosexuals or don't hate whatever, how about just don't hate and figure out the groups that you're that you're hating or if you don't like the word hating that you're intolerant towards, right. and figure out how you can treat them in a fair manner. Now that you have to agree with them but that you can be fair to them. Yeah. And if that group happens to be conservative Christians, then how can you deal with that? I actually would like to see that in our programs rather than, you know, anti-racism or anti-sexism because I think that what that does is, uh, okay, I don't, I don't have problems with this group, therefore I'm tolerant, which, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion that a lot of times that's not the case. I'm thinking you'd probably agree with 
the statement that I've made about our education system as well as that. I would like the system to not teach students what to think, but rather how to think. And I've found it rather ironic that it's usually Christian schools that are private schools that have classes on logic and critical thinking. But all the years that I was in high school, and most other people I talked to in high school, they've never had a class on logic at all. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. I, I haven't really looked into Christian schools as much. But, you know, I think part of it probably is that if you're a Christian school, you know that you're in the minority, so you have to be better at thinking. You have to be more on your game than if you... And, and that's what we talked earlier about the problems that, uh, of education and dogma. Uh, you know, when your your answer to people you disagree with is to stand up and shut them down and make sure they don't speak, yeah. you don't have very strong arguments. You can't have very strong arguments. You didn't have to use them. And mm -hmm. so uh, when you are put in a situation where you have to defend yourself, like I said, if you, if you already have a good, solid argument, then you're going to survive and you're going to become stronger. If you don't, then you have to rethink it. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was talking about earlier about how you have to read both sides of the argument because I've told people before, like, if you want to go forward and be able to argue your position, you need to be able to argue also the other guy's position and be able to argue it better than they could. And you need to be that if you were in a hypothetical debate, you could argue the other side just as well. Yeah. Yeah, if people can do that, then I think you would find a, a lot more critical thinking. I think a lot of what passes critical thinking in our society is if you believe me, then you're critical thinking. If you don't, then you're not. Which you know, which to me is the opposite of what critical thinking truly is. Yeah, I and mean, when you talk about your dream world, my dream world would consist of a world where atheists and Christians could debate, and the atheists wouldn't always throw with me words like bigoted, magic, superstition, things of that sort. Yeah, you know, I you know we've seen those sort of debates, uh, and. Uh, and when they come on my blog with that sort of stuff, I usually just call them out and then just let it go because obviously this is not a person that's a, a serious thinker. And, and I know some atheists who are who are quite intelligent, and I respect I respect them intellectually, oh, yeah. even though I don't agree with them. Uh, but you know, I've also met quite a few atheists, a lot of them on, online, that uh, you can quickly tell that they cannot stand stay in, in a real debate more than a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, and and so and and sort of sad that they have this myth that atheists are, are, by the fact that they're atheists, are smarter than the non-atheists. Right. What do you think the average Christian listening to this show could do about the problem of Christianophobia in the United States? I mean, I could just listen and you know, next George, this sounds like a real serious problem, but, hey, you know, I'm just one person. I'm just trying to get by in this life. I don't know what I can do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think in the light of uh, some of the recent changes, and these changes occurred, you know, when I officially written the book, you know, like what happened in Indiana and things like this nature. Right. I think we're just going to have to uh, recognize that as a uh, as a body, that we're going to be in a situation of minority power for the foreseeable future. Yeah. And uh, and this is not new for Christians. Historically, this has been the more common case uh, yeah. than, than the opposite. That's how we started. Uh, so we have to create. I think we have to create our own Christian community. Uh -huh. figure out what's protected. I do yeah. think we have to infiltrate uh, the, the cultural uh, cultural elements in our community, the, the, the colleges, uh, uh, Hollywood, uh, media, uh, infiltrate it, not to take it over, but to have, you know, because it's hard to have stereotypes when, when you actually know people this way. A lot of these people don't know 
a lot of uh, Christians. Uh, you know, I've I've written another book aimed at the Christian audience uh, to really outline some of these some of these issues. But I think that we have to be very smart uh, as to our our next approach. Uh, I think that in our society, as much as possible, we're have to, we're have to contextualize our complaints. And I'll give you a really great example. When the uh, shooting happened in France, uh, with a Charlie Hebdo, I think that's how you said it, say it. Uh, you know, and and the uh, cartoons came out. Uh, the AP would not run the cartoons. The AP refused to run the cartoons because they said it was offensive to Muslims. This was the same AP that was running the Piss Christ uh, picture. Uh-huh. And so we had an opportunity to contextualize why is it you're so comfortable offending Christians but not Muslims? Uh-huh. Lo and behold, and I know this is not a big deal, but I'm just using it as an illustration as to how we have to approach things. The AP takes down the Piss Christ. Uh, picture because they no longer can justify having it up there. Mm-hmm. I think we have to find ways like that to uh, to show people you are you really are treating Christians differently than you are treating other people, even though you're trying to say that you're religiously neutral. And if we do that, then that you know that's going to attack their social identity, and they're going to try to defend it. But if we have a strong enough case, they can't defend it, and then they have to change their ways. I think we have to think carefully along those lines as we enter into debate in this society. Yeah, and when you said form our own societies, we definitely though can't form these societies and insulate ourselves from war. That's why you said we have to infiltrate. Right, right, right. Are, I'm, not, yeah. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking like, uh, you know, Amish type of deals, yeah. but in with social media, you know, and we can, we can look at some other groups such as Jews uh, and how they have been able to create their own communities right. within the community. So, you, you know, you, you go and you work out, out, but uh, out in the in the world, and you have your friends, and, and you still reach out to people. But uh, learning how we can form our communities to help each other out, uh, and, and this, I think we're at the beginning of thinking this through. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but I think that we are going to have to carefully think about our next few steps as Christians, and not just rush into some sort of political gamesmanship or yeah. something like that. Yeah, I was just trying to clarify, just to make sure and such, because yeah. I didn't want people to misunderstand. But, um, um, George Weaver had a very good conversation. I want people to know this is a good book. It's a book that it's not too long a read, and it's not too heavy a read. And if you're someone who doesn't understand a lot of the sociological aspects and such, like me, you can still understand the main gist of a book and what's going on. Now, right now, it's available on Amazon for 34 bucks and the hardcover. In 1835 on Kindle, do you know if there's a paperback coming out soon? I, I hope so. I mean, you know, the, I don't know if you know how academic publishing works, but usually they come out the hardcover so that all the libraries will buy it up. Uh-huh. And then if it's popular enough, then they'll come out with the Kindle. Okay. Now, do you have I mean, a, about the paperback. Yeah. Do you have a uh, blog or website or email in case people want to find out more about you can get in touch with you? Yeah, once again, you know, that georgiancy.com mm-hmm. is is one of the best ways to do it. You, you can find me at, at the University of North Texas Department of Sociology as well, mm-hmm. but that's probably easier. I do have a contact page there, and so, you know, people can can uh, can contact me through that. Mm-hmm. Now, is there uh, any final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, you know, I, I, you know I, I'm glad we have these two, two hours. I think I covered most of, of, of the themes in the book. But you know, awareness is part part of the issue. To be aware these attitudes are out there, and to decide how we as a buyer are going to deal with them. And uh, you know, whenever we decide, we still have to be Christians. 
Right. So other people are free to hate us, but we're not free to hate them. And and you know I I would I would really emphasize that. Yeah, I tried to cover as much as I could. Folks, we definitely can't cover everything. And if you're wanting to see the nitty gritty of all the data and such, you do need to go out and buy the book. And it is something that could be helpful in your library to have. If this is a topic that interests you, please give a book. And I'm I know George will appreciate it. And I'd like to thank him for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me, Nick. And I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to have E. Calvin Beisner come on. We're talking about his book, Prosperity and Poverty. We're going to be talking about economics that day. It's going to be an interesting show. For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off. <laughs>